This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Have you ever been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Now it is here. Tell TBR your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and then sit back while, you, while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans that you can receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there is an option for any budget. Visit mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf and sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts a spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ugara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this uh, episode of the podcast on Friday, September 28th. Uh, good morning, Alice. How are you today? Good morning. We're... Uh, we're doing a, a special early edition, except it's coming out on the usual day. But for us, it's the early edition of For Real. Uh, normally, we record at nighttime, and it's 9 a.m. It is. It is. Uh, this is very unusual for us, but I have had a really bizarre week and very busy evenings. And so we have accommodated my bad schedule with a 9 a.m. Friday morning recording. So I basically, I just up front want an excuse in case uh, <laughs> we... <laughs> We screw anything up massively, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's just blame the blame the early hour. Yes, yes. So um, start with some follow-up. I actually have a follow-up on a book I uh, talked about in New Books last week, The Dinosaur Artist by Paige Williams. Um, I recommended the book to a friend who uh, likes was in a kind of a true crime um true crime mode. And he started it on audiobook and he did not love it. Um, he thought that it was um, kind of, uh, it diverged off of the main story too much. Um, he described it as like if a young reporter has a whole like notebook of information that they've gathered and they just wanted to like put all of the information in the book, um, there were for his taste too many kind of digressions into other topics and they went away from the main story about the dinosaur bone theft and whatnot. Um, so he was not a huge fan. Um, I still haven't gotten to read it, but um, that was a, uh, it was an interesting piece of information that I thought I should pass on to the rest of our listeners uh, that this recommendation didn't outland on audiobook anyway for at least one reader that I know. So do with so, that information what you will. So it's like a it's like a recommendation with a caution then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that maybe maybe on audiobook it's not great, or maybe know that the there are a lot of extraneous information. Um I don't know. I haven't gotten to read it yet, so I can't necessarily speak to that. It was just a piece of, of data to pass awesome. on. So if you like uh, you, the reader, like a lot of sort of random little tidbits and anecdotes, mm -hmm. maybe then that's like a bonus point for you. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so my bit of follow-up for this week is that one of our listeners who I forgot to ask her if she wanted her Twitter handle shared, so I'm not going to do that. But she tweeted at us and was basically she's talking about how last week we were talking about really great 
nonfiction subtitles and how the nonfiction genre excels at great subtitles, um, which is so true. And she was like, oh, here's another really great one. And we both were like, oh my gosh, absolutely. So that book is Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, Butcher of Men by Harold Schechter. Um, That's so good. (laughs) So good. (laughs) I just can't even with how good that is. I've def- I have I remember that book came out, I think, this year. And, you know, Harold Schechter kind of like publishes a lot of true crime. Um, I remember seeing it and being like, oh, gosh, 1800s, true crime, and that title is so good. And then I like forgot about it. So I was really glad that she brought it to our attention again. Um, and, of course, if you uh, have um, recommendations or, or questions for us, you can um, tweet at us, which we have our, our social info at the end of every episode. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's my, that's a follow-up for today, right? That is, yes, that was, that is just a delightful title of a book. I'm, I love it still. Amazing. Okay. Let's jump into our first sponsor, which is Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech by Jamie Suskind from Oxford University Press. Jamie Suskind argues that rapid and relentless innovation in a range of technologies, from artificial intelligence to virtual reality, will transform the way we live together. Some technologies will gather data about our lives. Others will filter our perception of the world. Still others will force us to behave certain ways. Future politics challenges readers to rethink what it means to be free or equal, what it means to have power or property, what it means for a political system to be just or democratic, and proposes ways in which we can and must regain control. Um, so again, this is published by Oxford University Press. They also have a um, a blog where they talk about it's like a midterm election HQ. And if you want to check that out, um, you can sort of venture over to blog.oup.com. We'll have the really specific link in our show notes. Um, And thank you for sponsoring us. Yeah, I was really excited to see that one. Um, I saw that book come up and it's been on my list of ones to look at because I really like him as a, a writer. And um, I think that topic is super interesting, but I didn't know from a university press how academic it might be, but and I still don't totally know, but I'm I'm really glad they sponsored because I'm excited about that one. Uh, all right. So uh, we will jump into our first segment of every week, which is new books, uh, which are books that have recently come out or coming out soon that we are excited or interested in talking about. Um, so the first one that I have for this week uh, is called Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream uh, by Sarah Churchwell. And so this is a book that is digging deep into the origins and evolution of two phrases, the American dream and America first, um, which are two things that are very uh, common in our politics today, but that um, come from different places. And so she kind of sets the premise of the book as looking at how they offer opposing views of America and then how those opposing views have changed over time. Because uh, the way that we think of America first and the American dream today are not really the same necessarily as how they were first used. Um, And so the book starts at about 1900, and then every chapter alternates between the phrases. So the first chapter is uh, the American dream from like 19... 100 to like 1915. And the second one is America First from 1900 to 1915. And it goes through each of those um, sections. And then it looks at uh, how they were used during World War I, the 1920s, the Great Depression, and through the rise of fascism. Um, 
And I started reading this one and, and I immediately like picked up a pencil and started marking off sentences and paragraphs that I thought, God, that's so fascinating and interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, and it's really interesting because she relies on uh, primary sources. So she is not re- she's not looking at academics and how they have like interpreted these phrases from the future, but she's looking at how people are actually using them at the time that she's each chapter is. Um, so she uses newspapers and editorials and letters and speeches to show how people understood it at the time. Um, and kind of the, I think that I'm only maybe like three chapters into it, but I think the overarching kind of theme is going to be that America first has always had close ties to white supremacy. Um, but the idea of the American dream has had a much different meaning as it was first used and as it's evolved than that the American dream originally had a lot less to do with economics and economic, um, uh, growth and economic supremacy and more about other types of factors that contributed to it. So um, it's really interesting. She's a good writer. It's a kind of a literary close reading type of book about, yeah, like a book that does a close reading of history, which I think is really interesting and I'm enjoying. So uh, the book is called Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream by Sarah Churchwell. That sounds so good. Yeah, it's really good so far. Dang. All right. I'm going to put that on my TBR list. So my first new book uh, pick for this week is The Raven Master, My Life with the Ravens at the Tower of London. This comes out October 2nd from FSG Books. Uh, I zoomed through this book. I really loved it. So The Raven Master is the guy, if you don't know about the ravens at the Tower of London, there's this legend, which he talks about in the book, of course, about how if the Ravens ever leave the Tower of London, the tower will fall and like England will, or London itself will kind of like come to ruin. So they need to keep Ravens there. And there's this, uh, there's this idea that they like basically imprison the Ravens, which he also gets into where it's, it's basically they, they trim their feathers a bit, but, uh, though under his current Raven mastership, you know, he, um, he's, he's very, obviously he cares a lot about the Ravens. He really loves them. And a lot of his job is, so he's a yeoman of the guard, um, which means that you have to have served under, uh, in the army in England for at least 20 years, which I did not know. Like, I didn't know that these were former, um, military men. So you have to at least serve, you have to have a spotless record. And then you apply for the job and you have to give – it's so cute. He, like, talks about how he had to give, like, basically this um, big presentation and he was, like, making his, at the time, cadets, like, listen to him, like, give this talk about, like, Mary (laughs) Queen of Scots or something. And it was, like, you have to – because you're also giving tours of the Tower of London in addition to, you know, all this stuff. And they have all these jokes. Like, um, it was one of the ones that they said whenever people ask, like, where did Anne Boleyn um, get – her head chopped off and they say oh somewhere around the neck region and you're like oh my gosh it's such so many dad jokes at the, <laughs> at the tower of london but he also talks a lot about he's obviously read a lot about ravens and like that's now become his hobby in addition to his job um and you just so when you read it and again it's a very um fast fun read you learn a lot about ravens you learn about sort of the history of them in england you find out what the actual basis is for this legend that if they leave the tower, you know, London will fall. Um, Which he obviously is very uh, both invested in because, right, he's the Raven Master, so that's his job, but also is like, oh, there's not really a record of this legend before the 1800s. But yeah, it was really interesting. And he's done a lot of research on it. But basically, ravens are fascinating, amazing birds. And 
I did not appreciate them enough before reading this book. So The Raven Master, My Life with the Ravens at the Tower of London. Uh, and it comes out the day this episode comes out. That sounds amazing. Excellent. Um, so my second pick is a book that actually like was not on my radar and I don't know how I missed it. Uh, but as like all of this uh, stuff has been happening in the news with the Supreme Court and just like sort of the general fury that many women, I think, at least women that I know and connect with feel, um, this book sort of bubbled to the top. And I thought, wow, how did I not know Rebecca Traster had a new book? So uh, the book is called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of, Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traster. And it will be out October 2nd from Simon & Schuster. So the day this episode drops. Um, and the first thing I have to say is even if you're not interested in this book, like just go look at it because the cover is amazing. Uh, it's just like it's so... It's so like subtle, but also great. Um, but anyway, the book itself is about the uh, it's an, bleh, an incisive exploration into the transformative power of female anger and its ability to transcend into a political movement. Um, and so, even though it feels to me maybe like that women's anger is actually a thing that people will take seriously, um, this book looks back into the like history of resentment and um, anger that has enshrouded women's slow rise to political power, and then looks also at the ways that anger is received when it comes from women as opposed to when it comes from men. I uh, wish you if you ever needed like an example of that, like just go watch uh, the Supreme Court hearing that took place yesterday uh, as the day we were recording uh, to look at how male and female anger is perceived and uh, accepted. Um, anyway, the book starts with the suffragettes uh, marching as White House workers leaving bu- leaving buildings after the Clarence Thomas hearing to things that are happening today. Uh, it looks at anger and how it is directed at both genders, the way anger is perceived, uh, and a history of delegitimizing female anger. Um, and I feel like this book is maybe a complimentary read to another book about female rage that came out very recently. Uh, so just about in September, there was a book called Rage Becomes Her by Sora Shamali. Uh, and it seems to me like this book is maybe more of a longer history of women's anger and kind of how that has changed over time, whereas Rage Becomes Her is more of a like contemporary manifesto about women's rage today. So I feel like if you are uh, angry about how the world is right now, uh, either one of these two books might be a good one to pick up to sort of focus your energy and intellectual uh and yeah, intellectual energy. Uh, so the book uh, I'm talking about is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traister. You know, that also flew under my radar. And I'm kind know, of right. I'm kind of wondering if they just didn't do a lot of pre-publicity. Um, because all of a no sudden idea. all of a sudden I feel like I've been seeing it everywhere and like Rebecca Traster doing all these interviews and writing pieces, and that's awesome. But I was like, I would have loved to have known about it before this. I know. But- I I did not like I honestly didn't know it was coming until I saw her tweeting about a bunch of stuff over the last probably week or two. And then kind of mentioning casually, like, oh, by the way, I have a book about this topic coming out. Um, but yeah, it didn't, I I don't know. I just, I completely missed it and I'm bummed I did because I want to read it immediately. But a uh, good tie-in with the events of this past, well, few weeks? The past few weeks. I don't even know. Yeah. It's, it, it's all like time has just blurred together. It's fine. Um, on a totally different note. Um, my next pick is called Feuding Fan Dancers, Faith Bacon, <laughs> Sally Rand, and the Golden Age of the Showgirl by Leslie Zemeckis. This also comes out October 2nd from Counterpoint Press. Um, Kim, do you know what a fan dancer is? 
I don't. I am excited for you to tell me, though. Okay, so you've maybe seen this in some kind of, I don't know, popular media, but do you know like those giant ostrich feather fans that can like- Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so Faith Bacon and Sally Rand both were famous in the 1930s for wielding these fans over there, like they, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, depending on what the authorities were saying at the time um, about their abilities or not abilities, but what they should be wearing, they were frequently not wearing anything. Um, but they were able to use the fans to like mostly cover themselves, right? And then they would like go mm-hmm. behind a screen some of the time and like lift the fans like away from their bodies. So you see like this silhouette, and they have videos of this online. Um, you it's not I know this from. It's from um, the movie White Christmas. They have the two sisters at the beginning. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they're not they're not as um, risque as this is, obviously. But yeah, no, yeah. they've got like don't they have like dresses up to their throats or something? Yeah. Um, that's pro. Yeah, G- given the popularity of especially Sally Rand, I would assume that that was like a nod to her while being mm-hmm. like, here's the opposite of that in a way. Um, yeah, if you watch that, they're really beautiful, and they it's it's sort of they handle these fans really artistically, and it's amazing. So. Uh, Leslie Zemeckis, um, she's previously written other histories of burlesque and all of this. Um, I think she's Robert Zemeckis's wife, um, which I was like, oh, so she's like really into movies and like Hollywood <laughs> and like the entertainment industry. Um, so she's really into sort of these forgotten feminist histories of the golden age of entertainment, right? So that's like the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um she got really interested in Sally Rand, and because Sally Rand was so famous at the time. And then in the course of that, discovered Faith Bacon, who, while she was researching it, she was like, oh, Faith Bacon actually was the first real proponent of this fan dance. And then Sally Rand was just, like, much better at publicity. And so – and Sa- Faith Bacon was eternally like, no, this is for my art. This is art. You know, like, all this. <laughs> and then Sally Rand is like, I'm going to have, like, a nude cowgirl dude ranch at this <laughs> – uh, they at like one of the world's fairs in the 1930s. They had these things where it was like you pay a quarter and you see these girls. Anyway, everything was nuts in the past and now. <laughs> um, so this is all about um, it. It goes through both of their lives and then kind of when they come to a head, right? Which is when they both are doing this fan dance, and then Faith Bacon is of course mad about it, and Sally Rand is like, "It's fine," um, because <laughs> she's the one who stole it. Uh, Faith Bacon ended up – she has a very tragic end, um, and then I'm like three-quarters of the way through the book, so I don't know how Sally Rand's end is, but um, the book starts with Faith Bacon's, and and she she does have a very tragic life. They call her the Marilyn Monroe of her time. Oh, um, but anyway, it's, it's really good. It's really fun, um, and if you really like books about like stars of the 1930s and 40s like I do, uh, I would recommend it. So Feuding Fan Dancers, Faith Bacon, Sally Rand, and the Golden Age of the Showgirl by Leslie Zemeckis. That sounds really good, and I'm having a hard time not laughing at the name Faith Bacon. I don't know why. Like it's just- <laughs> She was related to Francis Bacon. Really? Yeah. Oh man. I don't know. Something about the name is really funny to me. I don't I don't know what. Oh, anyway. All right. So, so my third book for new books is actually a little bit older. Um, but I, I just missed talking about it previously, so I wanted to make sure to do that. And it's called Heart a History by Sandeep Juhar, and it came out September 18th from FSG. Um, and so the uh, the author is a cardiologist and a writer who uh, is exploring the colorful 
colorful and little-known history of doctors who risk their careers and patients who risk their lives to know and heal our hearts. Um, so he does stories about the first open-heart surgery, about the um, the invention and sort of the first heart and lung machine, which is, I think, from this description, if I'm remembering right, they like hooked up two people basically together so that one could be pumping and living for both of them. And that was the first lead into the heart and lung machine. I hope I remembered that right. Otherwise, I just like put a bunch of fake news out there. But anyway, um, when also the um, invention of the pacemaker and kind of all of those medical technology uh, advancements. Um, and then because he is a cardiologist, he includes also his family history of heart issues as well as uh, stories about his patients um, and then uses all of that to look kind of forward into the future of medical technology and kind of what technology is able to do for us and what um, our sort of lifestyle choices can also mean for us going forward um, knowing the limits of medical technology. Um, and part of the reason this book kind of caught my attention is that my dad, uh, before he retired, he worked for a medical device company and he designed um, the chips that went inside heart defibrillators, which are like pacemakers in that they are used to try and keep hearts beating at a consistent rhythm. Um, so I just remember as a, a kid and a teenager, he would always come home and tell us stories about what he was working on and different heart issues and so explaining that. Um, and so I've always just kind of been interested in it because it's what my dad uh, used to be involved in. So there's kind of a personal reason this one that seems interesting to me, um, but I also think it sounds pretty pretty cool. Um, and it's also, there was another recent book that I don't think I ever talked about on the podcast that also is on a similar topic, uh, which is called Ticker, The Quest to Create an Artificial Heart by Mimi Swartz. So a couple of books out about kind of hearts and medical technology and stuff that might be interesting. Uh, but this book is Heart, A History by Sandeep Juhar. Kim, that's so cool about your dad. Yeah, so, my dad is cool. So wait, he designed chips for the heart defibrillator? Yep. So he designed the little circuits and chips that went inside of it that helped it run. Um, and then those were put inside the cases and then out into the world. So he led a team that kind of developed those, which is wish, like so beyond anything that I understand how to do. It's amazing. Yeah. I wish you could see my face right now because it is very impressed. Um, <laughs> also, if I were going to be – like if I were back in the day and I were going to be um, doing that heart transplant pump thing, what was it? It doesn't Heart matter. Long you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That one. That's the way I would do it. I'd be like, well, clearly we hook up another human <laughs> to this human. Make that and happen. And that should do it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll take care of that problem. Um, awesome. Okay. So my last new read is 6 by 10, Stories from Solitary, edited by Taylor Pendergrass. It's out October 2nd. I think all our books are out October 2nd this week uh, from Haymarket Books. So 6 by 10 is the average size of a solitary confinement jail cell, um, which is nuts. You know, if you – like, I don't know. I feel like mark that out on your floor and then be like, this is your entire space and you don't get to interact with other people. Um, so in 13 stories – so the reason it's edited, right, is that these are, these are told by 13 different um, – Inmates, 6 by 10 explores the mental, physical, and spiritual impacts of America's widespread embrace of solitary confinement. I think, honestly, this, just as a side note, I think it's a thing that we don't think about very often. And then it's so much in our, our sort of um, cultural vocabulary that we're just like, we just accept it. You know, you don't think about like how difficult this would be, which it's nuts because we know from studies how humans need to be with other humans. Um, 
So from stories, uh, through stories from those subjected to solitary confinement, family members on the outside, and corrections officers, 6 by 10 examines the darkest hidden corners of America's mass incarceration culture and illustrates how solitary confinement inflicts lasting consequences on families and communities far beyond prison walls. I wanted to quote the publisher because I feel like they really uh, are able to nail it, <laughs> I mean, you know, unsurprisingly, but... I just feel like if um, I know I know that our prison system is in um, drastic need of rehabilitation, and I think that this is an important part of it. So uh, I just wanted to highlight this book at the end of my list. So again, that is six by ten stories from solitary, uh, and it comes out from Haymarket Books. Excellent pick. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Uh, all right. So now that we're done with new books, uh, we're going to quick do our second sponsor of the week. Our second sponsor is Library Reads. Uh, and Library Reads is a monthly library staff picks list for adult fiction and nonfiction uh, that draws upon the power that public library staff have in creating, uh, helping to build word of mouth for new books uh, and the important role that libraries play in creating audiences for all kinds of authors. Um, so Library Reads as a list re represents collective favorites among librarians. Uh, they're the books that staff at public libraries loved reading and cannot wait to share with you. Um, so this year is the fifth anniversary of the Library Reads list. Um, so if you want to see it or learn more, you can visit libraryreads.org um, yeah, to learn about it and see how you can nominate titles for the monthly list um, and also see what the organization has in store for the future. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Library Reads, for sponsoring this week's episode. And I think Alice and I would both say, since we both now work with things related to libraries, that yay, uh, that's an exciting sponsor too. Yay, libraries. Yay, libraries. All right. Uh, so we're going to shift gears into our theme for this week, uh, which is true stories of the supernatural. Uh, because this episode is dropping on October 2nd, we wanted to talk about uh, creepy, ghosty, supernatural stuff. So you can add some books to your TBR before Halloween. Um, and so all of our episodes uh, in October are going to be creepy stuff. Uh, this one is uh, the supernatural, but we've got other stuff planned for the second episode that's also october and creepy. So anyway, uh, my first book for this theme is called Ghost Hunters, William James and the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death by Deborah Blum. Um, and so I guess before I get going, I should just say again that Deborah Blum is a former journalism professor of mine, but I love her writing and I think would recommend her books anyway. But I feel like that's a caveat I always need to just quick mention. Um, and so I had like the weirdest time with this book because I haven't actually read it, um, but I wanted to read it for this. I wanted to read it for a long time and I thought this is the perfect time. I'm going to get a copy. I'm going to read it. Everything's going to be great. So I ordered a copy off the internet and it arrived in my house and I was like, excellent. And I took it to work because I was going to read it over lunch and I got to lunch and I opened it and the cover is for Ghost Hunters and the inside of the book was for an entirely different book. Uh like it was a misprint. So I have the cover of one book and the text of something completely different that is not William James and the Search for Scientific Proof Afterlife. So I actually didn't really get to read it at all to sort of like preview and say if it's good or not, which is very, um, I always try to do that because I don't want to just recommend something I have no idea about, especially for like the later segments of the podcast. Um, but yeah, it was a very strange like, hmm, I've never seen a book misprinted like that. 
But anyway, uh, so the book, as far as I know, is set at the close of the 19th century, and it is about a group of scientists who decided that they wanted to investigate the unexplainable. Um, And so they're led by William James, who was a philosopher and psychiatry professor at Harvard. Um, And I think he was also the brother of novelist Henry James, but I'm not sure if that's applicable to this book at all. Um, And so anyway, Henry (laughs) James and his group of scientists that he was leading wanted to try and empirically prove the existence of ghosts, spirits, and psychic phenomena. So the book is all about them uh, trying to do that and what it looks like to try and prove that that supernatural stuff exists. Um, And I got to read like just a very tiny, tiny little bit of it last night because I ordered a new copy that actually has the text of the book in it. Um, And I think it's going to be really great. It opens with this um, story about a young girl who goes missing and then they can't find her body and then a woman starts to have dreams where she thinks that she knows where this young girl's body is and so she contacts the authorities and leads them basically directly to the place where this young woman drowned Uh, and then that's one of the cases that Henry James and his group of scientists used in their studies about psychics and their existence and whatnot so uh, and it's just like the writing is so good the scene setting is so great like I think it's going to be excellent and I am going to read it in October I just didn't yet because uh misprints foiled me so anyway Ghost Hunters William James and the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death by Deborah Blum um I have two quick points on that one is uh that seems like a very supernatural occurrence (laughs) (laughs) sorry this is true. Uh, this is true. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's nuts because you posted it, what, on Instagram? Instagram, and yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, I, I've i never seen that before where they printed the wrong. Either. Yeah. And actually, that the was- part that's really embarrassing is that it took me like three or four pages of reading the wrong book to be like, this isn't right. This is not what I thought I was reading. <laughs> Because it was all about Cuba or something. And I was like, I guess maybe this could start in Cuba. Like Henry James or (laughs) William James could have a thing in Cuba. And I was reading and then the author started talking about their mother. And I was like, I don't think Deb's mom is from Cuba. And oh my gosh, it took me, it took me longer than it should have to realize that I was not reading the book that I thought I was reading. So that's another embarrassing story about me. That's amazing. Um, my other point is so that thing that you said, like one of the stories that William James um and his team base their whatever findings on about that woman yeah. finding the girl. I feel like stuff like that. I don't know, I don't know if it's ghosts, but I do feel like that kind of thing, because there are a number of stories like that, means that something's going on, right? Like something. It could be I, just I will I will report back on what uh, William James. It's William James, not Henry James. That was going to be very confusing to me too. Um, what William James Henry? and his team discovered. I think I said Henry. Well, uh, Henry's books are nebulous like a ghost. That didn't go where I wanted it to. Anyway, <laughs> um, my uh, my supernatural pick, my first one, is The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, How Quakers, Hucksters, and Benjamin Franklin Created a Monster by Brian Regal and Frank J. Esposito. Uh, I picked this because the Jersey Devil is my favorite of the cryptozoological creatures, um, <laughs> along with Mothman, but there, there are no good books about the Mothman. Anyway, so legend has it that in 1735, a witch named Mother Leeds gave birth to a horrifying monster. One of the stories about this, by the way, is that she – it was like her 13th child or something and she was like – 
she as she was giving birth, she was like, let this child be a devil or something. <laughs> and then it was this deformed flying horse with glowing red eyes that like as soon as it was born, like flew out the flew up the chimney of her. <laughs> I'm sorry. What if it really happened? And then we're laughing in her pain. Um, so, so this uh, she, so this was in New Jersey. This is why it's called the Jersey Devil. And it's nuts because you hear 1735 and then Mother Leeds and you're like, oh, so England. And then it's like, no, this was New Jersey. <laughs> um, so it disappeared into the Pine Barrens, right, which is like this forest and it's uh, in New Jersey. So ever since – um, the Jersey Devil has been sighted in the woods. Like even this, like this century, they keep being like, "There's this weird thing that I see in the woods," and they're all are like, all the people are like, "Oh, it's the Jersey Devil." So, in the secret history of the Jersey Devil, Brian Regal and Frank J. Esposito examine the genesis of this popular myth. See, they're calling it a myth, but we don't know, and which is also one of the oldest monster legends in the United States. Oh, so great. Anyway, again, that is the secret history of the Jersey Devil, how Quakers, Hucksters, and Benjamin Franklin created a monster. So so my follow-up question for that is, what does Benjamin Franklin have to do with this? Oh, I don't know yet. I'll, I'll report back. Oh, man, I really want to know because, like, I was like, this sounds very interesting. And then you got to Benjamin Franklin, and I was like, what? I need to know more about that now. Uh, Yet another good subtitle. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. All right. Uh, So my second pick is called American Ghost, A Family's Extraordinary History on the Desert Frontier by Hannah Nordhaus. Uh, And this book is a family history and also a ghost story. And it is great so far. So the premise of the book is that in the 1970s, a woman, a ghostly woman, began appearing at a hotel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then strange things started to happen in the hotel. Like lights would turn on and fireplaces would go on and off. And there was, you know, curtains flying around and all these very strange things happening after this ghost woman started to arrive. Um, And it turns out that the hotel actually used to be a very grand home owned by a wealthy Santa Fe family uh, before the family sold it. And then it was um, turned into a hotel. Uh, And this house was actually owned by Hannah Nordhaus's family, uh, the author of the book. Um, And so the book traces the life and death and unsettled afterlife of Nordhaus's great-great-grandmother, a woman named Julia Schuster Staub, who is the apparent ghost in the hotel. Um, Julia Schuster Staub immigrated. She was a German Jew, and she immigrated with her husband from Germany to the American West, to Santa Fe, uh, and then sort of became part of the history of the American frontier. Um, and so the book is super interesting. It um, jumps between two kinds of stories. So they're sort of first, so Nordhaus is a historian and a journalist. And so the first kind of story thread of the book is her, the stuff that, like, that, that's verifiable. So like stuff that's in journals, stuff that's in passenger records, stuff that's in tax records, and all of these like kind of the documented um, true, real history that you can put together from about your family. And then the second thread is sort of the more like supernatural history of it. So she um, kind of like the family lore and the stories that we tell each other about our our relatives and stuff. Um, she early in the book uh, consults a psychic who reads some tarot cards and tries to tell her about the ghost that's at this hotel. Um, later in the book, she is apparently going to stay at the hotel in the haunted room overnight and like see what happens. Um, and so there's this kind of this speculative, imaginative 
ghosty side of the book too. And she's kind of marrying those two family histories together. Um, and this is another one I have made meaning to, meaning to read and then finally got around to starting ahead of this podcast. And I'm not quite finished, but it's really good so far. Um, and so I, I'm going to finish it and hopefully report back. So uh, the book is American Ghost, A Family's Extraordinary History on the Desert Frontier by Hannah Nordhaus. Sounds like a solid, good haunted house story. Yeah. Haunted hotel, haunted house. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That um I was looking for those the other day when I was was trying to find my picks for this. And uh, I was like, haunted house, nonfiction. And of course that is a little <laughs> is a little <laughs> difficult. Um they're like, Do you mean the house on Haunted Hill or whatever? And um, wait, the haunting of Hill House. I always do that. Dang it, it's not a haunted hill. It's <laughs> it's hill house. Anyway, um, but no, that's fiction, of course. So, um, but that sounds awesome. And in the grand tradition of our podcast, I feel I must recommend an X Files episode that kind <laughs> of pairs with this, which is the uh, it's Clyde Bruckman's final repose in season like three or four, and it's this guy, and he's kind of a psychic. But then Mulder is like, he's a psychic, and Scully's like, all of his things are explainable via X and Y, and oh, it's great. Anyway, but then. <laughs> But then it's like, are they? Anyway, that's not X Files. Is that like Twilight Zone? I don't know. That's Twilight Zone. <laughs> that was good though. Um, okay, my last supernatural pick is the World of Lore: Monstrous Creatures by Aaron Mankey. Um, so, Lore is of course Aaron Mankey's very successful podcast. I believe there is a Netflix show. Um, that came out, it was either Netflix or Amazon Prime that came out like in conjunction with the show. And then he also had this book that came out that talks about, you know, in lore, he tells these, uh, he tells these stories about these sort of, um, myths throughout the world and like where that, like what they might be grounded in and all of this kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. So this book is this illustrated guide to these monsters that are quote, part of our collective psyche. Um, so no matter how uh, wary and jaded we have become as individuals or as a society, a part of us remains vulnerable to werewolves and wendigos, poltergeists and vampires, angry elves and vengeful spirits. I love that line. Um, and it's it's basically talking about how we use we use these words like emotional vampires and um, actually they say zombie malls, but I haven't heard that phrase. But it's saying that the monsters of folklore have become part of our um, our language and our collective, you know, like we use mm -hmm. these words like vampire in these ways other than. So we've taken these um, stories from centuries ago that go throughout most cultures in, in um, the world as far as like, isn't it like most cultures have like some kind of like werewolf, most cultures have like a vampire mm -hmm. yeah. and like, yeah, really interesting. So it's saying whether these um, monsters are real or just a reflection of our primal fears um, we know on some level that not every mystery has been explained. Oh, I just love that. <laughs> oh, it's so cool. Anyway, um, so the unknown still holds the power to uh, strike fear in our hearts and souls. So if you are interested in having fear struck into your heart and soul, I would recommend this book. Again, it is The World of Lore, Monstrous Creatures by Aaron Mink. Excellent. Yeah. And he's actually done a couple other books connected to like lore and the podcast. I was just looking it up. Um, he There's one, I think it's either like out this year or coming out soon called The World of Lore Dreadful Places. And then another one that's The World of Lore Wicked Mortals. Um, so he's done a bunch of lore adjacent books about creepy stuff if monsters are not necessarily your jam. Uh, those other ones. Oh, are yeah. I saw I saw at least one of those, and then I, monsters are my particular jam. Yeah. So 
Hence, hence picking that. But thank you for bringing those. Yes. The- um, okay. And we're moving into our last segment. Right? Se- mm-hmm. Yeah. Segment three, the, which for us this week is the RIP Reading Challenge. Um, if you have never heard of the RIP Challenge, do not fear. I will explain it. Um, so RIP is it's in October, unsurprisingly, and it stands for Readers Imbibing Peril, which this year is its 13th anniversary. Oh, so wow, it's been really? around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I started book blogging in like uh, 2011, I think. Um, so that was seven years ago. At, like every October, people would be like, oh, I'm reading this for like the RIP challenge. And I was like, oh, okay. So I would <laughs> start just reading those. So I, um, we, we wanted to pick nonfiction that would fit. So RIP is books that could be classified as mystery, suspense, thriller, dark fantasy, gothic, horror, or supernatural. Um, so the goals <laughs> that they list uh, are have fun reading, and share that fun with others. And you can either just read four books that – in order to, like, you know, quote, unquote, like, do the challenge. Um, you can read four books that fit the very broad categories that they list. And then they have, like, um, a bunch of different challenges you can do. And that's at readersimbibingperil.com. Um, but we wanted to pick books that you could uh, use as nonfiction for this challenge. So, uh, Kim, you have the first pick. Yeah. So I have to admit, I struggled just a tad with this one because every time I started thinking about books that I would want to read this year for readings about readers and by being peril, I was just coming up with fiction. Um, and I just was like, what am I going to do? And then we had done these ghost story ones and I was like, those would have fit, but they're for the supernatural thing. Um, so my picks are maybe like a little bit off topic, but hopefully people, I think they still count anyway. Um, but they're just not quite as like, on the nose as perhaps they might be. So um, the first fiction book that I thought about that I was like, oh man, that would make a really good one this year is called The Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson, um, which is just a collection of short stories started with The Lottery, which is like one of the creepiest short stories I have ever read. Um, Like I just am very unsettled by that story. Um, And so it reminded me that there is a Shirley Jackson biography that I have also wanted to read that I think would fit for uh, RAP and has – noted as very good. Um, So the book is called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. And this is a biography that came out in 2016. Jeez. Um, And it was a really big book that year. It was made a notable book by like basically every major list you can think of. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, Kirkus Reviews, a bunch of other ones. Um, And it was also the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in biography, which is a pretty big um, one. That's one that um, the National Book Critics Circle, which is a group of book critics, they award a bunch of them. And um, they often – they pick really great books for that. So um, uh, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life is about Shirley Jackson's tumultuous life in inner darkness. um, And it sort of looks at her place within the tradition of American Gothic writing. So kind of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe, um, and specifically looks at her focus on domestic horror, um, kind of before writing about domestic horror was cool. Um, And so the the book talks about her uh, covering kind of a secret history of American women of her era. So sort of the dark side of domesticity. 
And it, it's interesting to me because Shirley Jackson was writing at a time um, when it was unusual for a woman to have both a family and a profession. Um, she was born in 1916 and then died in 1965. Um, and so like as she wrote and as her career kind of took off, her marriage struggled. She struggled with anxiety um, and she became addicted to amphetamines and tranquilizers. And so this biography is based on undiscovered journals, her diaries, letters, um, some of her unpublished fiction, and then a bunch of new interviews with family and friends um, about her. And so I think um, the lottery and other stories might be what gets on my RIP reading list, but I also have always, I've really wanted to read this biography for a while. Um, That is Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. Everyone who has mentioned that book to me, who has read it, has said that it's amazing. Um, Yeah, it was a big one. I remember at Book Expo 2016, it was a huge title and everyone was excited about it. Um, And I just... Never got around to reading it, which I am a little ashamed of, but here we are. I wasn't a Shirley Jackson fan for a long time. I thought that she was very good, but like, I, you know how some readers are like, I just don't click with them. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like they're for yeah. someone else. Um, but I, I kept reading her stuff and I finally read like a giant collection of short stories of hers. And after reading like story after story, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I finally was like, I understand her thing and like what she's doing. And um, I've really liked her ever since then. So, Sometimes with authors, you just got to keep trying. Um, My pick is uh, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which is a nonfiction novel by, uh, of course, the author of Breakfast at Tiffany's. But this was his uh, more sort of groundbreaking work. Um, It was first published in 1966, and it talks about the 1959 murders of four members of the Herbert Clutter family in the small farming community of Holcomb, Texas. Sorry, not Texas, Kansas. Sorry. Um, When Capote learned of the quadruple murder before the killers were captured, he decided to go to Kansas and to write about the crime. So he traveled there with um, Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird, because I think that's one of the like facts that comes up whenever Truman Capote is talked about, right, that he and Harper Lee were like childhood friends. Um, so they went and they interviewed all these local residents and investigators, and they took all of these thousands of pages of notes. The killers were arrested six weeks after the murders and later executed by the state of Kansas. Um, and then because, you know, again, the, the murders happened in 1959, the book came out in 1966. So Capote spent all of that time working on the book. Um, and it is, it was an immediate success and now is the second biggest selling true crime book in publishing history. Um, the only one that beats it is, uh, of course, Helter Skelter about the Charles Manson murders, which, by the way, I refuse to read. Um, but uh, in Cold Blood, yeah, it's uh, and it was also aside from his incredible um, investigation and um, it, it is that kind of weird uh, crossover genre of the nonfiction novel. So I think that it's um, uh, I think it's just worth reading just for that alone because he does that really successfully. So, again, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Have you read that one? I've I've read part of it. That's our heralding cry on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I've read part of it. There are too many, there are too many books in the world, Kim. Um, but yeah, it, it's I don't read a lot of actual um, in depth true tri- true crime because I feel like it gets I get bummed out very easily. Even though mm. I am actually also really interested in it, it's one of those weird push and pull things. Yeah, um, yeah. This one it's I've read it. It's very unsettling. It is. Um, yeah, his his approach and his writing style is very vivid, and it's just uh, the crime is very unsettling, and just the way that he writes about all of it is just like you read it and you just sort of are like, 
Ugh. Oh, yeah. I like, purposely kept out. But also, like, you have to keep turning the pages because you just have to know. So it's really good. Yeah. No, I, I, I kept out the names of the killers and the way that they killed people because I felt like it was unnecessary for the podcast. Yeah. Well, it's, All right. Uh, so my second pick is another author biography, actually, um, because the other book that has kind of on my pile sitting by my desk of things I might read in October is And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie, which is kind of one of her most – I mean, she's written a ton of mystery novels, but I feel like that's maybe the most famous one. Um, I don't know. I guess – that might not even be true. I'm not an Agatha. No, I'm I think that's Agatha, Agatha Christie expert. Um, but right. the biography is Agatha Christie: A Mysterious Life, and I didn't write the name of the author in the notes. Shoot. Oh well. So Agatha Christie: A Mysterious Life, uh, and this is a biography that just came out earlier this year, um, 2018, which is 100 years since she wrote her first novel, um, and. Uh, one of the things in the description of the book is that um, Agatha Christie has sold more than 4 million copies of her books every year since she died 30 years ago. So she is prolific and best-selling and still extremely popular. Um, <clears throat> but this biography looks at the world that she grew up in. Uh, it talks about her two husbands and her daughter and then the mysteries around her life, um, which includes an 11-day disappearance in 1926 where she just – disappeared and no one knew where she was. And it was a very kind of strange uh, episode. And actually, if you're curious about that, um, there's an episode of the Annotated Podcast, which is uh, one of Book Riot's podcasts all about that. So I will try to remember to link to that episode. Um, but yeah, so the biography, the, um, the author has access to her papers, her letters, her notebooks, and then does interviews with her family trying to kind of unravel the mystery of Agatha Christie's life and how it uh, comes up in her fiction. So um yeah, I just think she's a really interesting writer, and this biography has been, I think, well regarded so far this year. Although it's still pretty new, so there's not a lot of, um, not a, you know, awards or anything to speak of. But uh, it's on my list too because I'm curious about her and reading more of her books because I actually haven't read any of them, I don't think, which seems like a blind spot. So uh, the biography is Agatha Christie: A Mysterious Life by Laura Thompson. Thank you for filling that in for me, Alice. <laughs> and me, I'm here if only to help. Uh, that uh, I think that you're right. That and then there were none. Is it's either that or, or murder on the yeah. Orient Express. Mm -hmm. um, but those are definitely like vying for I think the top two for um, most well known Agatha Christie. Uh, that's an awesome pick. And I've also heard that 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 biography is really good. So um, great two lady creepy biography picks. Um, my last RAP. Uh, book that I have chosen is Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places by Colin Dickey. I think this came out last year. So Colin Dickey went on a house hunt in Los Angeles that, you know, showed all these like derelict foreclosures and quote unquote zombie homes. So, you know, like when people go and like explore abandoned buildings mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So he then decided, okay, um, I'm going to go on this journey across the U.S. to look at American history in our most famous haunted places because why wouldn't you then do that? I'm so glad that people just decide to do things. So <laughs> some, uh, some have established reputations as the most haunted mansion in America or the most haunted prison. Um, I think that those have been on like TV shows like Ghost Hunters and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, others have uh, the haunted Indian burial grounds in West Virginia, which um, evoke memories from the past or collective nation tries to forget. So Dickie is uh, basically just fascinated by all these places and wants to kind of figure out like 
how do we the living deal with stories about ghosts and how do we inhabit and move through spaces that have been deemed for whatever reason haunted, um, which I think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how – especially that latter question, like how we deal with these spaces that people have – other people probably have called haunted and then how that affects the way that we interact with them. Um, so he looks at the true facts behind a ghost story but also um, kind of the ways that those stories have changed and and why – so I don't know. I think that it's a really interesting blend of, of ghosts and American history, and, um, and the cover is great. So <laughs> trifecta. Anyway, um, Ghostland, an American history in haunted places by Colin Dickey. Interesting. I think Liberty Hardy read that book when it first came out and um, talked about it a bunch on like the Book Riot Slack and on Instagram and stuff. She really loved that one, if I recall. So excellent, uh, excellent recommendation. Uh, All right. So uh, that is uh, coming to the end of the podcast. So we're going to close how we usually do with what we are reading right now. Uh, And actually, I'm going to complete my trifecta of uh, biographies of lady authors because I just finished reading uh, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. uh, And that is by Carolyn Frazier, I think. I didn't write the author down again. Man, I am just not on it today. Um, So anyway, Prairie Fires is a big, comprehensive biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So it's about her uh, childhood, kind of what – she's the author of the Little House on the Prairie books. Um, And so uh, uh, the book is about kind of her actual childhood, so what we know about her living, growing up in the big woods and on the um, the prairie, um, and her family, like – very deep and desperate poverty. Like they were not well off in many ways based on like decisions her her father primarily made about moving the family from place to place and going out on the prairie and places where humans, it's difficult for us to live. Um, and so, yeah, it's about her childhood and then it's about her writing life and her uh, relationship with her daughter who was a an active collaborator on the Little House books and uh, kind of they had a very complicated relationship. Um, They had some weird late in life connections to um, fascism and isolationism and those kinds of things. Um, So just like a complicated, interesting life. Um, And I, I read this for my book club, um, but I, I like to think I would have maybe read it anyway, even though it's a big chunky biography because um, I loved Little House books when I was a girl. um, And but hearing that kind of real story behind them, that they're not as, they're not nearly as autobiographical as we wish that they were, or that we've been made to to think perhaps that they are. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of get behind the behind the story behind the story and about what her life was like and kind of how how genuinely difficult and t- terrifying parts of it were, um, and how she kind of moved beyond that to become a writer and her her writing process and all of that. So. Um, the book won, I want to say the Pulitzer Prize, I think, for biography. Um, it did win a Pulitzer. I just don't remember which one. And it's it's an excellent biography. It's a really, it's very readable. Um, it's big and pretty long. I think like 515 pages of text and then a bunch of footnotes. But um, I really liked it. I thought it was very good. So I, I would recommend it. Uh, the book is Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura, Laura Ingalls Wilder by Carolyn Frazier. You know, confession, I never actually read the Little House on the Prairie books growing really? up. I thought they always seemed boring. Like it was always like yeah. chapter one, Laura gets a cup for Christmas. Chapter yeah, two, the cup breaks. That's pretty <laughs> much it. That is that is pretty much it. Yep. But that being said, because I don't want to just slam 
Little House on the Prairie <laughs> because it's very popular and obviously many people love it very much. Um, and I love middle grade lit, so I don't, I don't, I don't understand why I don't like it. But I did read a book called The Wilder Life, which is about um, a woman who actually lives in Chicago who is very obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh, who, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, who went to like every Laura Ingalls Wilder site in America um, and then wrote about it. So I remember that book. It was real fun. I liked it. And afterwards, I was like, oh, maybe I should finally read those Laura Ingalls Wilder books. <laughs> and then I picked one up and I was like, I'm I'm too old to be reading these for the first time. Like, I can't do it. Anyway, um, what I'm reading now is uh, Fallout, Conspiracy, Cover-Up, and the Making of the Atomic Bomb by Peter Watson. Uh, so it basically is like, as I mean, I'm. It's weird because I don't know. I have like a weird relationship with scientific books where I don't like books about experiments, but I like books about history. So sometimes I can like read science books if they're about history. Anyway, mm-hmm. so this one is talking about the creation of the atom bomb in the United States and the um, conspiracy part. As far as I can glean it thus far, is that they're saying that. Everyone knew that the war in Japan was over. We didn't need to bomb it. And the reason that we bombed it was basically to intimidate Russia or the USSR at the time. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Given that I'm not very far through, I'm assuming he's going to go into a lot more. But Mm -hmm. um, it is kind of um, really going into all of the different scientific personalities and talking about basically how we ended up at this current state of like all these people have nuclear weapons and how that didn't need to happen. But it was because of certain decisions made very quickly um, back in the 1940s. So yeah, I don't know. It's neat. Interesting. Yeah. So that is our episode for this week. Um, If you have questions, comments, gifts you want to send us, that was gifts, G-I-F, G-I-F-S, not gifts, Um, although those are welcome too, you can find us on social media. Uh, On Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Yes. And if you feel so inclined and want to leave a rating and review on iTunes or other podcasting things, um, ratings and reviews help people find us more easily. Uh, And there you can also subscribe so that you will get new episodes the very minute that they come out on Tuesdays. Uh, And so with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 4 Real Podcast.